great aerodynamicist. Um, it's been running for more years than I, I know, uh, and we've had some very illustrious people give the, le the lecture over the years. Uh, and we follow in this, in this vein tonight, uh, and it's our pleasure and privilege to have Dr. John Lamar talk to us tonight. Uh, John holds a BSc and an MS degree in aeronautical engineering from the University of Alabama, as well as a PhD from Virginia Tech. He's authored or co-authored over 110 papers, is an associate fellow of the AIAA. John began his career at uh, NASA Langley Research Center in 1963, where he's performed numerous duties, including the von Karman lecturer, the principal investigator in three flight projects on the F-106B, the F-16XL, and has performed analytical, computational, and experimental, that's wind tunnel and flight, uh, fluid dynamics experiments. In 1983, John received the AIAA Aerodynamics Award, and in 89-90 was the National Space Club's Dr. Hugh L. Dryden Memorial Fellow. John retired from NASA in uh, January 2006 to establish his engineering consultancy, as you can see there, um, but uh, was the distinguished research associate until 2009 uh, at NASA. Both during his time at NASA and since, he's given lectures uh, all over the place at various universities, companies, and government research labs in the US and, and Europe. Um, and in 2009, John shared the AIAA International Cooperation Award with Professor Dietrich Hummel from uh, Germany. So his CV matches up to the standard we expect for the Lanchester Lecture. Um, so I'd like to welcome John, because I'm sure you've heard enough from me, to uh, deliver his lecture called A Career in Vortices and Edge Forces. Dr. John Lamar. Thank you, uh, Trevor. Ladies and gentlemen, members of the Royal Aeronautical Society, um, I'm delighted to have been, uh, been chosen to, to present the 2011 Frederick William Lanchester Memorial Lecture and very thankful to my friend, Dr. Raj K. Nanja, for suggesting my name to the organizing committee of the society for this honor. I'm also thankful for my many mentors at NASA Langley, especially Edward C. Paul Hamus, deceased, and Percy J. Bobbitt, whose guidance during my early professional years, coupled with divine inspiration, has led to the successes afforded me. These men were tremendous examples of excellent technical managers in that they knew how to give encouragement and direction while they themselves performed high-level research. Moreover, their questioning minds provided a framework of excellence to those around them. I was not aware of Frederick William Lanchester and his work until approached about giving this lecture. However, after doing some research, I began to understand why the Royal Aeronautical Society should name one of its memorial lectures after him, as he was a pioneer in aeronautics. As I was preparing for this lecture, I looked at a few past lectures and, con and concluded that any predictions for future aircraft or technologies made by me 
would prove futile. Therefore, I decided to focus on what I knew, which was what I had done during my career, that had some connection with Lanchester. Moreover, as I reflected upon him and his work, I was struck by some similarities in our background. Just a, uh, regarding some personal history, um, this is, almost sounds trivial, but I have a nephew whose middle name is Frederick, and um, my father and my eldest brother, both deceased, but first name was William. Um, that must qualify me for something. <laughs> uh, regarding boats, it was interesting that we had an interest in boats. In uh, 1903, uh, Lanchester had the first motorboat in the, the UK, launched at... Um, in uh, Oxford. Uh, I built a couple of boats, uh, designed this one, and um, it also was uh, motor-powered. We also have a connection with Birmingham. As you're well familiar, uh, Lanchester did much of his, his work in, uh, in Birmingham. But it's also interesting there's a connection with flight. In uh, 1910, Eugene B. Ely flew a Curtis Model D biplane off the USS scout ship Birmingham while the ship was at anchor in Hampton Roads, which is between um, Newport News and in Norfolk. You can see by the inclination of the flight path, it looks like this aircraft is going to hit the water. And actually, the wheels did hit the water, but he was able to successfully pull out and land in, in Norfolk. Uh, I, was, I was born in Birmingham, Alabama, in 1940. I wasn't around at the time of this adventure. This, this, uh, this feat by Eugene B. Ely is recorded on a historical, uh, historical marker in Newport News, uh, The Birth of Naval Aviation, took place not far from where I live. And um, Glenn Curtis established a flying school in between 1915 and 22 in Newport News. And it may be hard to see, but uh, he taught a number of, of pilots, uh, both Canadian and um, uh, you may be able to read some of these names. Uh, um, for instance, Gen General Billy Mitchell is... Um, is um, what do I do? Oh, thank you. Um, and uh, these were trained prior to World War One for the, uh, at least for the Americans. School was uh, disbanded in 1922. Uh, regarding interest in aeronautics, we know that Lanchester published his two uh, seminal works in which he, he tried to put together everything that was known about aeronautics and things that he had observed. Um, and um, he tried to bring some order out of chaos, as it were. 
Uh, as a boy, my brother built model airplanes, and I built model airplanes, and, and maybe some of you built model airplanes and, and flew them. Uh, and along with divine inspiration, I decided to study aeronautical engineering at the University of Alabama. But um, uh, a month later after I started school, Sputnik was launched, and so they changed it to aerospace. Um, but regarding vortical flows, uh, these are two figures out of uh, one of his books. And uh, I, I wasn't... I really wasn't aware of these, but I, it's remarkable, and this figure is going to show up later in the talk, uh, about what great insight um, Lanchester had regarding vortex systems. Uh, things in my professional career, uh, there, there are mainly three, attached flow, classical aerodynamics, uh, vortices and edge suction forces, and flight. Um, when I first joined Langley in, in 1963, there were two major projects underway, the Apollo, um, and then the, the big aerial project was the supersonic commercial air transport, or SCAT, having these uh, requirements. Um, the, these programs had both been underway for some time before I, I joined NASA, and uh, many configurations were studied for the American supersonic transport uh, including something that's Concorde-like. Um, these were the design conditions, and um, I found that interesting. If you want a, a full uh, review of, of all of the configurations studied, you might look under uh, Ed, Ed Ray, as it would be a reference. Um, Regarding the classical aerodynamics, at, at NASA, they wanted everything to be, well, they wanted to emphasize the wind tunnel part. And I was assigned to the 7 by 10 high-speed wind tunnel. But um, the, under the leadership of Paul Hamus and others, they, they wanted to, the experiments that were conducted, they wanted them to have as sound a theoretical base as possible. Um, I was a junior engineer and started with uh, SCAT 16. I was the third engineer on that project, the variable sweep uh, model, and I'll show it in a moment. And later, we tested a, a half-span variable sweep model with pressures. Um, hybrid wings, variable sweep, um, these, were, these were things that were of, of coming interest at the time. Actually, I, I must say that I, I arrived at, at Langley at a very opportune time. Computers were just coming into their uh, proficiency in terms of, of a utility. I'll have a few words to say about subsonic aero co-development, both the modified Molthop and the vortex lattice. Um, and that I'll show some applications for analysis as well as design for single and two planforms. Regarding the SCAT 16, this this shows this variable sweep model. Uh, it's a 124th scale, uh, three engine, uh, shown here with the wings sweep open. They had uh, both 76 and, and uh, 66 degrees of sweep. Um, I, I'm not going to 
do a lot of curve tracing. I'm, I'm going to tell you some of the challenges that um, we encountered, and especially that I encountered. This just shows these uh, two, two models in the wind tunnel with the wings open and the wings uh, swept back. This, this half-spin model was interesting. I had never done a half-spin model before, and, uh, but the, we had a side wall balance and we had a splitter plate. Uh, Wayne McKinney was, uh, he had really put this together. Um, we tested it with and without a fuselage simulation. We had a, a wing sweep of, I think it's about 72 degrees, and we had three outer panel sweeps, 15, 30, and 40. We had a variable glove that actually would change. These are actually fixed wings, and we would take the glove off, and then we had a matching glove for uh, each wing position. And that's uh, simulated here. These were, um, these were all 64A, zero XX sections, 72 and 30, 15, 30, and 40. Now, one of the challenges here was that um, we were going to generate a lot of pressure data. That's, these are indicating where the pressures are located. But we didn't have any way of, of trying to integrate those into normal force and pitching moment to get the sectional data. Nor did we have a way of, of um, besides graphical way. Okay, there was always graphical. So uh, anyway, one of the first challenges I faced was to to come up with, we, had, we didn't have any spline fitting routines. Uh, spline under tension, those, those are good words. Uh, so I put together a little program for integrating the pressures and uh, I'll show some results in a moment. Um, in fact, here they are. Um, this is with the fuselage in place, this is inboard and then outboard where the, the wing normal force slope, normal force coefficient against uh, angle of attack on a sectional basis. Uh, in in the, the written version of the paper, I have a comparison between the, the integration of, of these data uh, with the side force balance. Regarding the subsonic aero code development, the, the modified multop method, um, Hans Multop developed a wing lift theory in Germany and after World War II came to the UK and expanded his work to a lifting surface method. Afterwards, he went to the US to work. Actually, I had an opportunity to meet him uh, in the mid, mid early 70s uh, he came to Langley for, for a visit. And I'm sure you know that his, his son, Dieter, works for the Air Force in, in Wright-Pat. Is that correct? Uh? Yeah. Um, in, in 1982, um, the NLR, two of the, the uh, engineers there, Van Spiegel and Werders, put Malthoff's lifting surface method into a form that could be programmed. And um, this was another challenge for me because I didn't know programming. Uh, and so I had to learn Fortran and, and um, I began the, the coding work in 1964. And uh, this just shows, it has this, the angle of attack uh, loading function, 
cotangent and half angle, it turned out to be very significant, uh, as we'll see in a moment. These were all for single plan forms. This just shows you some of the features, uh, constant angle of attack, and also simulating pitching and rolling motion, calculating overall forces. And we, when we did the analysis, we said, well, why don't we just turn it around and do design? And so we, we did that. Regarding the vortex lattice method, the motivation was the crash of the XB-70. In uh, the 8th of June, 1966, five aircraft that all had General Electric engines were flying for uh, formation flying, mainly so that the manufacturer could get a, a, a good picture of all the aircraft that were flying using their engines. When the, this F-104 uh, was caught up in the upwash on this deflected uh, tip on this XB-70, wiped out the two vertical tails, killed this pilot instantly, and um, one of the pilots, one of the air crew on the XB-70 was able to eject, but the other air crew perished. So NASA Langley was asked to um, tell us what the flow field was that the F-104 was experiencing. Well, we didn't have any code at that time. Um, uh, Rich Margerson had a, a vortex line method. And uh, so we, we expanded it to um, a, a vortex lattice. And um, just shown here to um, accommodate anhedral, dihedral, and also a second plan form. Because we wanted to model a canard as well, even though that wasn't the major contributor. And so we have the horseshoe vortices laying on the surface and, and so on. Um, unfortunately, this, this took us longer than, than actually the, the Air Force uh, had time. So um, they got answers some other way. But by 1971, we, we had put together a code that uh, would do this. And um, I seem to be touching the wrong button here. Um, so that was uh, the other code that, that I was in, in which I was involved. And it's since been upgraded in four plan forms and, and other features that I'll talk about uh, a little later. Regarding applications, an analysis for this half-span model um, the, the dots, or the, the circles and the squares, they represent the, the C and alpha section against span. And um, there's pretty good agreement, uh, not perfect, but pretty good agreement with this, uh, this modified uh, multop method. The difference in C and alpha is only about 0 0.01 at max. The other big thing was, was uh, I mentioned hybrid wings and, and variable sweep. Um, uh, Joe Alford and, and Ed Paul Hamus had patented an outboard pivot um, for, for a, a wing. And um, this just shows an example. If you have the wing along the wing pivot at the center line, uh, you get this. These are two of the, the dots, or two of the data points, one of about oh, seven degrees and 
and one about 30, 50 degrees. Tremendous uh, aerodynamic center shift with wing sweep change. To move the pivot outboard, as most of you know, uh, you can reduce the aerodynamic center shift as you go from, oh, roughly 25 to, to uh, 75 degrees. And we were able to, uh, to capture the, the essence of that, that movement. Of course, variable sweep, as you well know, used in the, uh, the B-1 and the uh, F-14 and, and um, also the, the uh, TS. Well, it, anyway, there's one more fighter. Okay, that was a UK, but there was also another, um, I think it was a F-111, thank you, thank you. Um, once we had developed the analysis code, <coughs> uh, we had no code for doing design work. Now, the, the supersonic guys, they had the Carlson Middleton methods for doing supersonic design, but we didn't have anything. And so as soon as, as uh, we got the bugs worked out, um, some of the guys in, in the branch decided, well, this is a SCAT 15 type platform. And they said, we want to see what a mean camber shape would look like on a platform that's swept and has a crank. And, uh, and so they, they built it and they found out. And um, it... Uh, it didn't perform very well. And they, they found out that it was because the, there were two severe requirements on, on uh, normal force or, or pressure in the vicinity of the crank. So this was a learning experience for all of us. And so the next time, they tried a, just a more simple configuration, um, more standard. And at the design Mach number, drag polar, uh, we're getting good agreement with the full suction um, better than the planer. At off design, uh, the, 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 the cambered wing uh, doesn't, doesn't work as well. So this was a learning experience for, for us. Um, we had no tool and now we had a tool and so we had to learn what it would do and what it wouldn't. Excuse me. The, this is using the, the vortex lattice method uh, for two plan forms. Now, the, the, the background here is that I had taken an optimization class at Langley, and, and I was interested in, in trying to, to see if, if you could optimize the mean camera shapes on two plan forms in conjunction with a constraint at, the, at a fixed lift coefficient and at the pitching moment be zero to try to find the, the vortex drag. And so this figure shows uh, A-type uh, loadings. This is A of 0.6 and A of 0.8. And it shows the effect of, of moving the reference point fore and aft. That's the scale down here. It also shows the effect of moving the, the canard up so zero is canard in plane, and then negative is the canard above 
the, the wing. Of course, we know that as the canard gets far enough away, you get like the monk stagger theorem. And, uh, so, but it was interesting to look at the, the combinations and to, to look at the, you can reach a certain elevation. Of course, there's structural constraints and all these other things that have to come into play. But they all show a benefit by moving the reference point aft and by moving the canard up. Associated with each one of these solutions is a uh, our mean camera surfaces for each planform. And, um, oh, I see what's happening. I'm ah, I need to go back. Um, I understand that uh, Dr. Nanja has taken, taken the, uh, the ideas and, and has implemented them in some of his own codes. Okay, regarding vortices and edge suction forces, I'll talk about the Paul Hamus suction analogy just briefly, uh, some uh, edge suction uh, analytical uh, developments, and associated wind tunnel tests, and I'll, I'll focus on the, the modified Malthop method, though the vortex lattice method uh, has been used at, as well. We'll look at some other um, vortex effects. We'll look at wing design using vortical flow, edge suction and vortex coherence, straight design, and some correlations with uh, data. Now, I'm not going to go over this figure. I assume most of you have seen it uh, many times, but I'll just point out one thing that that it was the the leading edge suction forces that we generated in the multi in the modified multi method that Paul Hamish used to to develop his KVLE term, and and so uh, that's what this says we de developing the suction, and then I began to to look at this and that noting that. It looked like that the, the higher the wing sweep, that the, the more suction turn you got from the edge. And so it, it led me to think that, well, perhaps the, uh, what we're seeing here is a side edge effect. And um, so uh, <clears throat> that led to um, this work where we, this rectangular wing we have a singularity and backwash, which gives rise to the leading edge thrust. And we also have singularities in either, uh, well, sidewash or trailing vortex density on left and right. And um, so um, I'm, I'm really indebted to the work of uh, Milda Thompson, the theoretical arrow. Everybody got one of those? Good book. I bought mine for $1.75 um, a few years ago. Um, uh, but that, coupled with the, the work of Blisteringhoff, Ashley, and, and Hoffman in their aeroelasticity, where uh, you can see the strengths of vorticity, either uh, trailing or, or bound. And compared to what Lanchester put together, uh, this is after the trailing edge. He, he didn't. He wasn't able to look on the wing, but uh, it's, it's really remarkable, uh, his insight that he, he had. Now, in order to, to do this, uh, 
what you have to do is you've got to integrate this uh, bound vorticity density up to some place on the, on the wing, and then you've got to do a, a span-wise span fit. And uh, this is this illustrated here at the 90% of uh, some rectangular wing singularity being integrated up to, it's a point, uh, 017 of the cord. So you pick up uh, the circulation, and then if you take that and you plot it over here, and you, you do it with all the other uh, stations from inboard to the tip, and you do a curve fit with uh, a even sine series at, onto a square root of 1 minus eta squared, then, uh, and then you can do a differentiation, and you get something that uh, which you'll get a singularity in um, d gamma d eta for the trailing vortex density or twice the, the <coughs> sidewash. That, that's uh, been, been published and it'll also be, the details will be in the lecture, the printed version. So out of all of this, you end up with a coefficient, a side edge suction coefficient, just as Paul Hamus had a leading edge suction coefficient. And I just want to focus on the, the bottom part of the chart, uh, out lift, uh, bottom against alpha. This is the potential part, the dash curve, and then the potential plus the side edge part is this, this huge contribution here, and then this remaining contribution is due only to the leading edge. The aspect ratio of one wing. Just as an aside, I don't know if you've noticed, but it seemed like for aspect ratio one, whether it's delta or rectangular wings, we seem to do pretty well. If you get above or below that, the, the agreement is not quite as good. Just one other example, this is a, a cropped a diamond wing, aspect ratio 0.74. Just again, looking at the bottom, alpha against lift, there are more charts that have been published, but again, the potential lift is here. Now, in this case, the long and short dash curve is, is the potential plus the leading edge contribution, and then this part is the side edge contribution. And it certainly helps, but it, it certainly misses the data. And so that, that led us to wonder why, what was happening? And it became clear that on a delta wing, you got the, some theoretical suction distribution like this, but in actuality, you've got some vortex, some shed vortex that's being generated. And it's all generated up to the point where the, uh, the trailing edge occurs. And then this vortex continues downstream. Well, that's, that's not new, we, we know that. But if you've got some area back here, then you have an opportunity for this, this vortex that was shed along the leading edge to trail over this aft portion of the wing and produce an additional lift. It's called delta CL or the augmented lift. Now this is in addition to the side edge suction part illustrated here by the, these arrows or uh, conceptually by this vortex system. I was surprised in the wind tunnel 
trying to find this side edge vortex separately from the leading edge vortex. I never could because it, they, the side edge vortex merges with the leading edge vortex. Uh, but you can account for these effects separately. And on this, uh, this aft part of this crop delta wing, this C tilde, which is defined to be the distance from the leading edge tip to the trailing edge apex, the, the circulation is already fixed at what was shed over the leading edge uh, up, to the, up to the leading edge tip. And uh, so using the plane of potential method and, and having some circulation at any distance along the leading edge and having some net downwash over some length generating a, a net suction force, we're able to put together the fact that the, the net downwash along the leading edge was very similar to the net downwash along the side edge. And, and it led us to be able to express a, a new coefficient for side edge or the augmented uh, effect uh, in terms of the leading edge suction and basically the length along the leading edge times the characteristic chord. But when you do that, this is the same wing. No, no, I'm sorry. That's not. The, let me see. Yeah, this is the same wing that I, I showed a moment ago, and in, in which, um, um, yeah, there it is. This is the potential part, the, the leading edge part, the side edge part, and the part due to the augmented term. And so, we we're able to predict the lift pretty well. Similarly on a cropped uh, delta, and it even works on a cropped uh, arrow, where in this case, the, the leading edge tip is ahead of the trailing edge apex, and so there's still a positive effect. But when you get to so much notching on the trailing edge, there's actually a negative effect, as indicated by the sign on the KVSE term. Once we had done the, the design work, I'm sorry, the, the analysis work, it looked like we, we should try to see if we could design with vortical flow. And th there was some constraints here and that um, th they, they seem obvious, but um, when, you, when you do them, you have to build them in that the circulation will always be positive. You want the vortex system always on the upper surface. And uh, this was at a fixed lift coefficient for a fixed Mach number. And the, the dash curve is attached flow and, and the vortical flow is uh, the solid curve. So there's so much more uh, incidence required in the root region. We're moving from root to tip. Uh, Mid-span, they're about the same. But as you approach the tip region, you really have to have a significant twist in order to keep the vortex system attached on the or on the upper surface. We used uh, the vortex lattice method um, in, in this project with, at that time, General Dynamics, Fort Worth Division. This was the pre-SCAMP, pre-supersonic commercial, no, supersonic and cruise maneuvering performance aircraft. Um, and the... Um, 
you saw the significant amount of twist introduced in this previous chart. Well, that was happening for this wing as well, this cranked wing, where the, constrictions, the restrictions were that it be a single vortex system along the upper surface. So because wing boxes and other things uh, come into play, we had to end up with uh, some reductions, but we took reduction in twist, but we took the, to get the aerodynamic effect, we had to use leading and trailing edge devices. And um, uh, it, it, worked, uh, it worked pretty well. This was a, a transonic design case. Now fortunately, we were able to find that you could, you could get much the same benefit by just uh, other leading and trailing edge combinations, so you didn't have to have a potato chip wing in order to, um, to accomplish that. Regarding uh, edge suction and, and vortex forces, let me just call your attention here to these uh, diamond, uh, these delta wings, 45, uh, 63, and, and, and uh, 76. These are suction distributions against span, and you can see that as you, as you increase the sweep, the suction distribution peak increases, and it also, the peak moves outboard along with the departure angle for the vortex system, ranges from seven to 13 to 37. And that was interesting. If we looked at just uh, cropped delta wings, of this having a taper of zero, um, all having 45 degrees sweep, we find a similar, uh, similar activity. This is suction against uh, span, different scale, but the peak values are moving up and the distribution is becoming more triangular. So we're going from seven to 10 to 20, depending on the amount of, of a cropped wing we have behind. Now, this was interesting because it, it uh, provided some insight into a problem that in the lightweight fighter competition of the 70s, there was on the F-16 and F-17 slash later F-18, both of these configurations, they had over 100 different strike combinations with wings, 100 different strikes that were combined with the wing. And so the design for the strike was all done experimental. There was no analytical basis for the design. And so with um, with this idea that if you have the suction distribution that, that's peaking more outboard and it's higher, um, perhaps there was a way to combine this with, with what cord was associated with that. And so uh, put together a program and, and Neil Frank uh, ran it uh, for his masters and, and um, we tested, he tested over 200 uh, strakes in the water tunnel at Northrop and, and we tested uh, some 16 of the best ones at Langley in the wind tunnel. And these are suction distributions against span. And we, we tried a variety. The ones that are shaded are the ones that we, we tested. I'm just gonna show one example, and it's using this, this particular straight. This is the total lift against angle of attack for the configuration. Potential curve is shown by the dash, and we've got two um, vortex lift theories, a moderate and a high alpha. 
and I'll explain what those are in just a moment. But uh, you can see that the high alpha predicts the data pretty well. This line here is just the zero axis. Um, the pitch is, is between these two lines. Um, Jim Lucker and I did a paper some time ago in which uh, he, he contributed this sketch, among other things. These are the suction distributions on the, at uh, moderate alpha on the strake and the wing and the side edge, along with the augmented portions of the wing that are covered by the trailing systems. And the trailing systems are shown by this flow sketch. At, at the, the high alpha, what you get is that the, the flow sketch indicates that the straight vortex is the one that persists and that the, the wing and side edge vortex are displaced and you're not getting a contribution from them. So you're basically getting the side edge forces in, in a sense that, that are driving the vortex system and then this is the region of augmentation. So that's the difference between the moderate and the high alpha theories. This model was particularly interesting in that it had a, a it was a, a, a dual balance. It had a main balance right here to measure the whole forces, and it had another balance that was mounted, I'm sorry, the main balance was back in here. This mounted the forebody and straight vortex, straight uh, systems, and then just by combination you could, you could work out what was the wing and afterbody forces. And so shown on the bottom, the lift against alpha and pitch against total lift, and the solid curve, this, the, the circles are for the wing afterbody, and the squares are for the, the straight vortex, and, and it worked uh, amazingly well, and it, it even brackets the pitching moment data for each one of these components. The next part and the last part of, of my talk will, will focus on flight. Uh, as has been indicated, I was involved in several flight programs. But I think the, the reason maybe uh, perhaps of more interest, um, the reason was that I've been doing the same thing for 20 years. I've been doing experimental work, wind tunnel, I've been in computational work. And um, I thought maybe I should be able to do something else. And uh, I had the idea about, I'd like to see if, the, if this thought that vortices are independent Reynolds number uh, was really true. And um, through a couple of starts and, and, and so on, we're able to, to get access to the F-106B aircraft and uh, do some, some experiments, both with a fixed light sheet and a rotating light sheet to look at, at, uh, at vortices, at uh, flight conditions. And uh, we'll look at how you uh, can use data fusion to examine a, um, uh, much data. And then the F-16NXL under the Cranked Aero Wing Aerodynamics Project. Uh, when I got involved in the F-16NXL, it was, it was the flight portion uh, associated with the high-speed civil transport, and but that got canceled. But uh, thanks to to NASA Langley and NASA Dryden, they continued this as a basic 
project through, uh, well, I know the flights mainly took place in, in 96. And we were interested in establishing and predicting the flight flow physics on this aircraft. And then uh, I'll talk uh, just a little bit about how this project got internationalized. Just want to point out one thing. This was a light sheet. This was not a laser light sheet. Well, why didn't you use a laser light sheet? Well, I wish we could, but we didn't have one. This was done in the mid-80s, mid and um, we only had the aircraft for three months. We had um, one month to install our equipment, we had one month to do our flight test, and we had one month to take our equipment off. And, uh, and then we had to develop all of this hardware that sit on this missile bay pallet. We had to locate a seating probe, and we had to develop all of this equipment. And um, praise God we did it in about a year, which is uh, remarkable. Um, the, um, so I've told you it's not a laser. The other thing I want to tell you is that this seating probe I mean, everybody knows where to put a seating probe, right? You put it where the, where the flow gets, gets drawn in, into the vortex system. That's what you're trying to see. That's what you're trying to illuminate. Well, it turns out that we had another F-106 at, at Langley that uh, we were going to be using in an, an experiment with the leading-edge vortex flap. And uh, so... Not because of me, but uh, we wanted to test the, this uh, aircraft in the 30 by 60 tunnel. Well, it was too big. So they cut it down the center line. And they, they put it up on the, the edge. And, um, and we did some testing in the 30 by 60 trying to look at the proper probe locations. Now, one of the, the first things that, uh, that comes to mind is that when, when we started getting data, we're expecting one vortex, okay? I mean, this is basically a sharp edge wing. It's, it, it's aerodynamically sharp. Uh, it, the radius to chord ratios range from 0 0.17 to 0 0.13%. So aerodynamically sharp. But we're ending up with three vortices and two vortices. And so the, we're being asked, well, you know, do you guys get secondary and tertiary vortices? They're all going the same direction. They're all, so what's happening? We didn't know. Uh, this was a surprise. And this just shows some enhancement at uh, these, these angles of attack. So to try to answer the question about where do these come from, well, this just shows that we looked at a range of probe tips and, and uh, slit widths for the light and, and intermittent continuous operation, and, and this just shows us some parameters associated with the core. That's the distance on the leading edge. That's L against alpha, and, and the envelope, that's M, M against alpha, and then the elevation of the core above the upper surface, that's Z. We looked at a lot of these combinations to pick 
which ones we thought was, would be best. But we were still interested in, in what was the origin of these multiple vortices. Now, associated with this was a test being done at Langley and the 7 by 10 tunnel by uh, Jim Hallisey, in which he had a, a smooth uh, F-106B aircraft, and he began to uh, model, and he began to introduce uh, disturbances, trips along the leading edge, and he could begin to get some oil flows that looked like what we were seeing. And uh, this shows some uh, access straps, and it shows the different elevations, or I'm sorry, the different sweep positions of the light sheet. Um, we've also added a, another camera. This was primarily in conjunction with a vortex flap experiment, so you could see close to the leading edge. We also relocated the light sheet to the upper surface and made it rotatable. This just shows the region, the shaded area shows the region of, of the wing that was covered by the, the seated flow. And uh, it has a wing slot, which generates another vortex and prevents uh, it being seated without an additional source. I think that's all I want to say on that. Uh, the, the, the whole point of this chart is trying to look for the multiple vortex system source. And I, I'm not going to try to trace core paths and, and, and approximate reattachment location. I want to just focus right here. And this is what we found in, in detail. We found that the, the vortex that was shed in this vicinity we're getting a reflex, and we're actually beginning to pick up a couple of uh, separate cores. And it turned out that it's, it's happening very near one of the access straps. So the access straps were actually tearing or cutting the vortex system and giving rise to these uh, extra systems. Now, just as, a, for instance, at this test conditions, I've, I've superimposed the core location from, uh, from another chart onto the pressure distributions that, that are located basically perpendicular to the um, leading edge. And what's interesting is when the core path crosses one of these lines, if you read vertical, that's, uh, that's an indication where there is a, a vortex system uh, located. It, it seems to work pretty good here. And here, you get this peak, and you're getting this peak here. So the point was that you're able to take two different kinds of data and to, to marry them and, and come up with a similar answer. Regarding the, the F-16XL and its research paint scheme, on the left wing, you see these tufts as well as these uh, white video targets that um, uh, proved quite useful. We had um, active on the right wing some 280 upper surface ports, and we had some 40, uh, 46 on the lower surface, primarily in the vicinity of the leading edge, where they were flush ports. They were arranged so that we could 
do plotting at uh, constant um, butt line as well as do, could do cross plotting at constant fuselage stations. Now in addition, what we knew about boundary layer rakes is we knew what flat plate boundary layers supposed to look like, but I didn't know what a boundary layer was supposed to look like underneath a vortex. So we thought that might be interesting to, to see, and so we, we had two boundary layer rakes that were flown uh, in conjunction. One was a control located in the region where the flow was streamwise, and then one uh, other one that was located uh, in the vicinity of a vortex system. Uh, on separate flights, we flew Preston tubes, uh, some 16 Preston tubes at a slightly different location due to um, uh, structural considerations. So we had 32 Preston tubes, or we had 32 um, ports for the boundary layer, and this was the ESP module that was used to collect the data for both sets of uh, information, both sets of pressures. We also had some seven video cameras, two on the vertical, one in each one of the air missiles, uh, the missiles of leading edge noses. We had um, behind the cockpit and one HUD camera. When you have a lot of data, you always look for ways to, to display it and in a summary fashion. Now, I, we also have individual butt line and fuselage station plots, but I, I thought it was interesting to try to use the CFD as kind of a wallpaper and to, uh, to plot the, the flight data. Uh, the location of the ports is shown by the, the black dots and the value of the pressure using the same scale as the CFD is plotted as the donut value. And so where you, you don't see any disagreement, that means that, that uh, they agree well. Shown here in this uh, highlighted region in the apex, you, you actually find there's regions of higher suction that were measured than were predicted. I will have to say that uh, this was, you know, what we were able to do with, I think we had about two million cells for this, this uh, half a model. Um, um, and I wasn't an experienced CFD user, uh, but I think that it's, um, it was remarkable what we were able to, to, to gain. Um, this was the, the, this is plotting the velocity in a boundary layer rake over the velocity at the edge of the rake against height off the surface. And this is the theory that was, that was used. And this is, a, this is rake number three, somewhere. Yeah, boundary layer rake three. This is our control. And so it was repeated on several flights, as I mentioned. And so the flight data are, are in good agreement, and, uh, but they, they don't quite, uh, aren't quite well predicted by the theory. Boundary layer rake four is supposed to be underneath, this is our theoretical prediction of where the primary vortex was located. And though there's difference between the two methods, it is interesting that the measurements and the theory both show a, a jet type flow 
about the same location. This was supposed to be near the secondary vortex. In fact, Vanderlei Rake 5 was supposed to be underneath the secondary vortex, and Vanderlei Rake 7 was supposed to be at the uh, secondary uh, vortex, secondary vortex separation point. And you can see that the theories are, theory indications are much different. It turned out that the, the measured data are about the same. So we didn't do too well uh, regarding the secondary vortex. Either it's, um, um, its core values or the secondary separation values. We also looked at skin friction, and uh, as I mentioned, uh, these were run at different flight conditions. This is inboard, moving outboard, and we're getting, the predictions are, are getting some peaks that, uh, but not the same amplitude and not the same location that the, uh, the measurements indicated. We used the CFD to, um, to orient these, uh, these um, modified Preston tubes so they were supposed to be in the direction of the local flow. So we, we didn't quite capture all of the boundary layer rate data and we didn't uh, quite do a, a, a tremendous job on the skin friction, but we do know that skin friction is a good way of telling not whether a vortex system is passing because you will get a peak in, in skin friction. So um, this, this led to an opportunity to involve the international community through um, um, AVT uh, 113. We had uh, airframe companies and, and government labs and university-led efforts. Um, all of these are wonderful people. Some uh, found they had other commitments and weren't able to continue. I'm not going to curve trace here, but I'm only going to just point out that the, the solid curve is, is what we had predicted in the 2001 paper. And then uh, you can see how much improvement uh, these uh, samples of uh, the other, by other researchers <coughs> picking up secondary vortex and, and other features. Uh, that was, uh, the white line shows where the, the data are being collected. And um, you can see much improvements uh, there as well. And as we're moving out on the outer wing panel, you can see, uh, again, much improvement. So I'm very thankful for the collaboration that we had with our international partners in AVT 113. We find similar improvements in, um, uh, in the boundary layer data, especially with uh, rate, rate number five, where we had this tremendous uh, overshoot. Uh, basically, they're all showing uh, improvements, and uh, we're, we're glad to see that. Also, for the skin friction, the orange curve here is the, what was published, and though they're scattered, uh, there is, some are showing a little better agreement than others, but they're, 
it's um, it's useful having so many different participants. I think there were there were nine participating organizations and ten different solvers that we use, and it's it's remarkable. I know there's a drag prediction workshop that the ALWA runs, and and uh, I don't think all of those solutions agree either. Um, regarding summary, I'm thankful to the divine guidance and selection of a major engineering course and uh, basic attached for aerodynamics and many of the ways it can be utilized. Um, we should not minimize this. I'm, I serve on an industrial advisory board for the University of Alabama Aerospace and Engineering Mechanics Department, and I've learned that they they have wanted to the the universities universities uh, in America are trying to reduce the number of hours required to get a baccalaureate degree. Uh, when I was there, it was 148. Now they're they're driving down to 130 or so. Um, and to do that, you've got to drop some things. Um, now I don't know what it's like in the UK, but um, but I know that. There's some, some things. That it, it takes a while to get an understanding of, of these important aerodynamic features. So I'm just encouraging people don't minimize the aerodynamics. I also have to say the timing of my Langley Research Center employment, it was, it was great. I, I mean, it was frustrating because I, I didn't know a whole lot. I thought I knew some stuff, but I didn't. And, but I worked with great indigenous researchers we got to exploit aerodynamics that cranked and hybrid wings, and we got to look at associations with, um, of wings with significant vortical flows. And then the, the opportunity to study and predict vortical flows at flight conditions and, and international aerodynamic community uh, contributions to my career have been significant, both in terms of literature, uh, books, articles, and the collaboration with uh, uh, with uh, the community. Uh, Raj and I talk about the aerodynamics fraternity. Um, th there's, uh, it's, uh, it's something special and, and I value it. And I think that's, that's all. I'm sure John will uh, take some questions now from the floor. We have Microphone.